Today's reading, gospel reading, comes from the Gospel of John in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 or 12. 11, very good. Hear now the word of the Lord. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it, and when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now here I am. So here I am. Um, there's a great story that I think, um, I believe it was John Wesley told whenever he was public speaking. Someone asked him to speak publicly, and he, uh, he said, well, how long do you want me to speak for? Because that'll depend on whether or not I can. And he said, what do you mean? He said, well, if you want me to speak for, for two hours, give me 30 minutes. If you want me to speak for an hour, I need at least two days. And if you want me to speak for 20 minutes, I need two weeks. So I've had about 30 minutes to prepare. <laughs> Just kidding. No, we're going we're gonna to keep it concise. Um, this gospel text has always held a really unique place in my paradigm of scripture. And I think it's in large part because of my upbringing. If, if you're like me, you, you probably grew up in a holiness tradition or, or even a Pentecostal tradition. And the only background that I have, the only explanation that I've ever been given, has been a lot of moralizing what Jesus does here or a lot of explaining away about the alcohol consumption that's happening in this text. No, 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 grape juice. It's, it's grape juice, not wine. Jesus does not condone this. Because honestly, as we read this, Jesus really sounds like a rebellious teenager. 
Like, he's in conflict with his mom. He's bringing wine coolers to the party. Like, it's, it's a real problem whenever my holiness tradition comes to this and says, ah, Jesus is this great moral character, and he's getting people drunk. It's, it's this real dichotomy that creates a lot of confusion and conflict in me. It's one of the moments where we say, do what Jesus says, but maybe not what he does. Don't, don't just start multiplying wine in places where you don't need to. Um, but I find that, especially in this text, and especially in this season when we talk about epiphany, God being made known to us in Jesus Christ, I find that the discomfort and confusion that I find in this passage with Jesus is really telling of a lot of other places in my soul. There are a lot of places where I'm encountering Jesus and he has character traits or he's acting and I can't help but be left really confused. I, I come to it and I'm like, Jesus, I, I don't fully understand and I feel like I'm supposed to. I feel like I'm supposed to grasp this really tightly and I'm struggling to do so. But I love this confusion because a beautiful part of this passage as we're about to study is that Jesus is in the business of making himself known. Clearly, we see that this, this passage ends with his glory being revealed, his, his character being known. We see the character of Yahweh revealed, and we see, importantly, his disciples believing in him. And yet, we are bewildered and confused by what we see. Jesus is making wine. He's in conflict with his mom. So I think it's helpful if we read through it one more time. But as we do so, I want to encourage us into a practice of awareness as we read. What are the places in our souls where Jesus feels enigmatic? What are the places where we don't fully understand what Jesus is doing or even who Jesus is and what he's wanting to do in us. I want us to be aware of this because Jesus is welcoming our bewilderment and inviting us into familiarity. So let's reread John. We're going to reread this whole thing and then we're going to go through it. So on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. I'm going to pause here for two quick contextual notes. I love how in John's gospel, he does a really amazing job at always reminding us anytime we want to deify Jesus and say, oh, he's fully God, he quickly reminds us that he's also fully man. This is his first miracle. This is a big moment in his ministry where he is revealing the glory of Yahweh and he's showing that he and the Father are one. And we are immediately reminded at the start of the text that he has a mom, that he is fully human, that he is born just like us. So we're reminded of this. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, 
The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then they drink the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory. And the disciples, his disciples, believed in him. Since we're already meditating on the spaces where Christ feels unclear and mysterious, I feel that it's helpful to address the text and go through it seeking Jesus in, in just honesty, seeking Jesus in response to this. There are certainly more than three clarifications we could ask about the text, but in, in true Pentecostal fashion, I'll, I'll keep it to three main points. Um, and these are the three points I'm going to focus on. Jesus' willingness and timing, the nature and the amount of the miracle that he provides, and then what it means that his glory was manifested. Um, but before I do so, I had a real, like a real Bible nerd moment whenever I was studying this. So I'm going to take a quick tangent and have a brief aside for everyone here because I, w- I just kind of geeked out about it. And so I like geeking out about things with other people. So if you want a concise synopsis, a quick boiled down summation of God's plan for all of creation, it's located in John chapters 1 and 2. We, we see John para- offer a parallel between Jesus and the entirety of the Old Testament going all the way up until the end of time. So we have this very famous verse in the beginning of John where we say, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Clearly a reference back to Genesis 1-1, where in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. So we see this at the beginning of Genesis. And then what John does is he goes on to explain how Jesus is our dwelling place, which is the same language that's used in the Pentateuch for the tabernacle. It's God's dwelling with us. So Jesus is at creation. Now he's compared to the law and with Moses as the tabernacle, our dwelling place. And then now John the Baptist is brought into the picture. Clearly this representation of the perfect Old Testament prophet for prophesying and foretelling the coming of Jesus He is making the way ready for the Lord to come. We see Jesus baptized, which is his coming. We see his disciples hail him as the king of Israel in the end of chapter 1. And then we are brought to this moment, a wedding. It's the same imagery where in his revelation at the very end of our Bible, that is the exact imagery that we see the church entering at the end of time. The last thing that we do before we go on forever is a wedding feast with Jesus. So we have this kind of duality of perspective. In one sense, this is grand scheme. This is Jesus is showing us the end game. He's showing us what and how good it's going to look like at the end of time. And at the same time, he's just beginning his ministry. He's saying this is who the Father is, and this is what's to come. This is what we're expecting. So with these two perspectives, we finally begin to actually study the text and look at these three enigmas um, that are challenging us in this moment. So the first one is in verses 3 through 5. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. 
It's difficult because whenever we read this, it appears that Jesus wants nothing to do with the problem. We, we read Jesus' statement in response to his mother, and we often interpret it as it is even in this text as, this isn't my concern. Maybe even, this is beneath me, this is wine at a party, like, I have come to do, you know, heal the sick, cast out demons, um, I've come to die and, you know, conquer death. Wine at a party seems very minimal on ways in which God's glory could be manifested, right? It feels like if I can cast out a demon, that's going to show God's glory a little bit more than if I can bring wine to a party. But there's a cultural idiom that we miss uh, that helps us better understand what Jesus is saying to his mother. So first things first, going back to trying to explain rebellious teenage Jesus, um, he says woman, and we're kind of put off by that. Like, if any of you called your mother woman, you'd probably be in trouble. At least I would be. Um, but in ancient context, the, the term woman was a term of respect and endearment. So for us, it would be like if I went to my mom and said, mother, can I, you know, do such and such? Or mother, can you help me with this? So it's more of like this formal engagement. So mother is, it's strange to our ears, but Jesus is not disrespecting his mom. Respect your mothers. Don't call her woman. The next thing that he says is what does this have to do with me? Um, this is actually a Hebrew idiom. In the original language, the literal translation is what to me and you. So what to me and you. Um, we often translate this, which you know feels very descriptive. We often translate this as what do I have to do with this? We translate it in the negative because in our terms, if I were to say if I were to say in the same context, what does that have to do with me, that has negative assumptions. It means I don't have anything to do with it, so don't involve me. But in its original language, it's much more neutral. It's not as negatively connotated as ours is. So what Jesus is saying is, what to me and you is, how are we involved? How are we related to this? I'm here He's almost asking, what do you expect of me? What do you want me to do? So he's not saying, I don't want anything to do with this. He's asking a question. He's saying, okay, you have a need. What's your need? And then the last part of this, where he says, my hour has not yet come. Often whenever we read this in this moment, we, we think of this as a, I'm not ready to start my ministry yet. If I may continue using the rebellious teenage Jesus uh, motif that I've been using, we see it as, you know, the sleeping teenager Jesus who's not ready to get out of bed, and he's just like, five more minutes. I just need five more minutes to sleep, and then I'll start my day. I'll start it, but it's not time yet, so just give me time, and I'll get up on my own. But what John uses to describe this hour is not the beginning of his ministry, but the culmination of it. Throughout the Gospel of John, we see this again in chapter 12, verse 27, when Jesus is in the garden, he again references this idea of my hour. And it's not the beginning of his ministry, but it's the end. It is his crucifixion. Jesus' hour is the reason why he came. It is to be the sacrifice for us and to conquer death. So whenever we read this, Jesus saying, my hour has not yet come, sorry. When Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, he's not saying it's not time for me to start yet back up. 
He's saying, my death isn't here yet. I have time. He's saying, yeah, my hour's not here. I'm available. It's like whenever we were little kids and we were at our best friend's house. We knew that mom was coming, and we knew that until she was stepping into the door, we were good to go, right? Like, she's out in the driveway, doesn't matter. She's not in the house. I can still play with Legos. We're good. Like, until she's dragging me out, my time hasn't come yet. So yeah, my time's not yet here. I'm available. So whenever we look at this, it's important to note that Jesus is not unwilling to do this, but he's available. He's at the party, and he's saying, I am available. I have time. How do you want me to intervene? which helps us in the next verse, because clearly his mother takes no issue with what he says. She immediately turns around to the servants and says, all right, do whatever he says. She kind of gives him free reign to continue on with the miracle. So Jesus is willing to provide for the needs that he's presented with. He isn't being rushed, and he isn't being pulled away, and he's not being hesitant about trying to start something that he's too afraid of finishing. He has time, and he values the problems that are brought to him. And now we get to the difficult part. Verses 6 through 10, the amount and nature of Jesus's miracle. Jesus provides a miracle that I am morally uncomfortable with. So let's, let's reread this passage, starting in verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars that were there for Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And when he said to them, and he said to them, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, which had now become wine, and he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called to the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when the people had drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. I think it would have been much simpler, honestly, if I were to retroactively go back. Now that Jesus has done the miracle, I almost wish Jesus would have said, good riddance, I don't want anything to do with this. Because when Jesus acts, he does so in a way that makes it almost more complicated than if he had said, no, this isn't my problem. Honestly, it would have been simpler... Because one, the the amount of wine Jesus makes in this moment is concerning. (laughs) Like, just really. If we're we're talking conservatively, also, as a quick aside, please don't show the AG my search history because it's been a bunch of wine questions the past week. So if they find that out, they're not going to be happy with me. (laughs) Jesus, Jesus takes these six large stone jars, conservatively holding 20 gallons, which are filled to the brim. That's 120 gallons of wine. That's so much. That's so much. And this is what I was looking up because I didn't know this offhand. About a gallon of wine is about five bottles. And a glass of wine is about five glasses. So we're going to multiply 120 by five and then by five again. That's 600 bottles of wine on the wall, conservatively. And then 3,000 glasses of wine. That's a lot. <laughs> That's a lot of wine. Even, even for 100 people drinking 12 hours a day, it would take them five to seven days to finish it. Like, <laughs> that's a problem for my Assemblies of God heart to hear. Jesus makes this, 
And he provides abundantly, right? Clearly, he provides so much. But this isn't the only concerning aspect about what Jesus does in this miracle. The type of wine Jesus makes, according to the text, purely in this text, is also concerning. So again, I grew up where this story was moralized, where Jesus made non-alcoholic wine, which, if you want to believe that, I'm not saying no, but there is a problem with that in the text, and it's because of what the master of the feast says. He makes this statement in verse 10 that we tend to overlook it because we spiritualize it. We know we love the imagery that John brings about wine. Jesus brings the good wine of life, and we're like, yes, yes, he does. But in this moment, he makes a very material comment about the nature of parties. He says, when a party happens, you bring out the good wine to get people drunk. And then once people are drunk, you can serve them cheaper wine because their senses are already dulled. They, they don't care that it's, it's not as good. But when he talks about the good wine and the less good wine, he's actually referencing Jewish tradition. So wine was, was a normal part of the Mediterranean diet. It's not like us where, you know, wine is either for special, would be for special occasions or, or something that, you know, we would hold in the basement until we're ready to pop it open. They're drinking this fairly regularly as a part of their diet, but it's not in its pure form. Jewish uh, regulations often said that it's supposed to be diluted, uh, that everyday wine that you would drink would actually be about two-thirds water and about a third wine. But the good wine would have a, a lesser dilution, so it would be about 50-50. It would, it would be the good stuff, right? So what happens is the master of the feast tastes this after they've already brought out the good wine, or what they thought was the good wine. So they've already had the 50-50 stuff. And then the master brings it out and says, this stuff is better, which means it's stronger. <laughs> they just got done with the 50 proof, and Jesus brings out the 110. <laughs> This is a problem, <laughs> at least for me, in my, again, wanting to moralize, moralize this story. Jesus brings out 120 gallons of wine that's stronger than everything that they've been drinking up until this point. But I think there's something about this that we miss because we, we do tend to get wrapped up in the wine aspect of it. I briefly mentioned it before, but there is an important statistic that we think about in this passage. He provides wine for five to seven days. That means that the celebration continues for another five to seven days. Jewish tradition has weddings lasting about a week long. So if the wine ends early, suddenly you're having to provide for people who are expecting to stay longer and you don't have anything for them. So Jesus isn't just you know, turning up the party to 11. He's allowing celebration to continue for an extended period of time. He's saying, no, we're here to celebrate. We're here to rejoice. And so I'm providing for this moment to continue. But what's important is he's not doing so in a way where the expected customs were followed, at least not in the way where the senses were just continually dulled. We just start the party strong, and then we just keep the wine going, and the senses are dulled, and we just kind of keep going on until the wine runs out, and then we all leave. No, Jesus provides a miracle that both allows for the celebration to continue, but it also challenges the senses. 
And if we can maybe allegorize this a little bit, I feel like I, I resonate with this. I, I'm only in my early mid-20s, and already I have an expectation of life, even life in Christ, where the good stuff has been served, and now maybe my senses are a little dulled, and my expectations moving forward are just, he'll keep it going. He'll just, he'll keep the party going. Yeah, it'll be okay. But Jesus is providing a wine that challenges the senses. It's reinvigorating. It's reanimating the party, not just allowing a mundane, yes, I'm here, life is fine, the party is fine, to go on. He challenges the senses. He reanimates it. People are tasting and becoming reawakened in a way that's full of surprise and delight. He's providing for the celebration. And then lastly, we see in verse 11, Jesus' glory is revealed, and his disciples believe in him. So all of this, this celebration, this provision, the utter abundance of all of this coalesces into epiphany. His glory is revealed. His disciples believe. In John's gospel, it's important to note that these signs that we talk about and the glory that we're seeing is a way of immediately relating Jesus back to Yahweh. One of the things that John is doing whenever he writes not only his gospel but his later letters is he's combating early forms of heresy called Gnosticism which said that Jesus was not fully divine. He was, he was a created being. He is combating this. So he is saying, no, this is a sign that Jesus is fully divine. We see that he's fully human because he has a mother, but we also see that he's fully divine. He carries the glory of Yahweh, and he reveals it in this moment. So our last point of confusion is, bringing it back to the beginning, how on earth does this show the glory of Yahweh? How on earth does Jesus bringing the good stuff for five to seven days, how does this show God's glory? How does this show God's character? I think it's found in the prolonged joy and delight that Jesus is bringing to the celebration. And I find this really challenging in this moment, even not just this moment here, but this season that we're in, because intentional times of joy and delight feel far and, few, far and few between. It feels rare to just find moments of, yeah, let's just be happy, right? And on the other hand, I don't think that that should be the case all the time. It should not be the case where we are followers of Christ and I'm just happy regardless of what happens, and I'm never sad, and I never grieve. Clearly, Jesus grieves, and yet we are challenged in this moment. We're challenged because Jesus is providing a moment for surprise, for delight, for joy, and in that moment, Yahweh's character is revealed. His glory is manifested. And in a beautiful moment for us as we sit in Epiphany, his disciples believe in him, which is so interesting. If we look back at the end of chapter 1, they've already hailed him as the king of Israel. It feels almost out of place 
where Jesus does something really cool where he says, Nathaniel, I, I saw you under the tree. And he says, oh, you're the king of Israel. <laughs> it's like, okay. But then in this moment, in this moment of celebration, Jesus provides where there would have been a shortage. And, and the way that he does this miracle suggests he could have done so indefinitely, right? They could have just kept refilling it with water and Jesus could have kept making wine. The party could have never ended. Now, it needed to, but it could have kept going. It's this moment that the disciples believe in Jesus. So I find this appropriate but challenging for our souls as we get ready to take communion. Right now is a season where it's difficult to feel like we can just intentionally celebrate or intentionally sit in surprise and delight and just find moments and plan moments of joy, trusting that Jesus will carry it forward. It's especially difficult right now because COVID is resurging once again and certainly quarantining and um, wearing masks again and staying away from people are, are all things that aren't really conducive to, you know, at least happy forms of surprise, forms of joy and forms of delight. Um, it feels like there's a balance of grief and of celebration that are happening together. Um, Matthew Skinner notes about this dichotomy of celebration and grief that especially because we've recognized Mary in this moment, that this is a moment of celebration, but as we already mentioned, this is the beginning of the end. Jesus beginning his ministry means he has begun the road to the cross. So he is celebrating and providing for this, but we also recognize his sacrifice. So Steve, if you would mind coming up to help me for communion. We're going to make two lines down the center as we normally do. Whenever you come up, the words will be spoken over you, the body of Christ broken for you, and the blood of Christ shed for you. And if you feel appropriate in this moment, it, it might also be a meaningful addition for us to respond, thanks be to God. A challenging, a challenging confession whenever we unite with and affirm the sacrifice of Jesus, celebrating his suffering. Also recognizing that we live in the dichotomy where we do celebrate what Jesus has done and we live in grief. And then you can partake on your own and afterwards we will have our benediction. Um, but Kevin, if you would help us with worship, I appreciate it. I encourage you to address the spaces in our souls, in your soul, where you find celebration and where you find grief. And know that Jesus is being present in prolonging joy and celebration, but also affirming grief and helping us as we move forward.